So we ended, where we ended last time is where I'll start this time. I mean, whatever, I'm going to overlap a drop, but which was a question of, at the beginning of this bracha, of slicha, um, we start with the salach first, followed by the machal. Salach lano, machal And then we say, ki mocha which reverses the order. So that was kind of what we were talking about. Um, I forgot there was something in here I wanted to use also. Let's see if I can find it easily. Um... And we read from, from Ha'ar Satsvila, he quoted, well, I don't know who he quoted, actually, but he, based on a pasuk in Shemos, what he said was, this is, he quoted a Gemara in Yuma, this is what Hashem said before God, Ribbonu Shalom, when the Jewish people sin and do tshuva, make their intentional sins be like unintentional sins. So he says, even though when we normally ask, we would bring the lighter things first and only then get up the nerve to ask Hashem to forgive us for something bigger, sort of work our way up. Mm -hmm. Um, When Hashem is actually forgiving our sins, the first thing is really hoping that he will reduce the level of seriousness of the serious sins down to the level of the lighter ones and then wipe out all the light ones and that will include the serious ones. You sort of think of using some sort of, you know, like detergent that will take out light stains but not heavy stains. It might make the light stain, the heavy stain lighter but you're still left with a stain. But if you can first get the heavy stain down to the light stain level, then when you remove it, everything will go together. Okay, so that was, that was the answer that he brought. Not the detergent part. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, I understand the way you explained it, but I was, I was discussing this with my son, and he said that you know, he sees it a little bit differently. He said, like, if you accidentally killed someone, like you hit them with your car, right. you would feel a lot worse than if you were an intentional murderer because you intended to kill that person versus, right. like, you know, so he felt like. He feels like the unintentional sins are more distressing. Right. So that's, I think you're referring to even something we said before that, maybe the Maharal, where the, uh-huh. the Maharal said um, that there can sometimes, it can hard, sometimes be harder to ask forgiveness for that which is negligent because you don't feel you did something wrong. Is that, that sounds even more like what you're referring to, like, mm-hmm. right, that, right. A, that a person might do something not but, by, but on purpose, feel, but they feel, feel so bad. You feel worse because you feel like you were negligent, right? You, so, you know, it's not like I intentionally, you know, defied God, but I, you know, I was negligent and I should, you know, this is something I should have taken care of. You should have, you know, right. missed the bicyclist, you know. I think that this, the, the degree to which it bothers us that we've been negligent is the degree to which we care about doing what is right. Mm-hmm. And that's why there can be a problem with the Shigaga. I mean, with a murder or something like that, that would be like way beyond where we're holding, then for sure we would feel horrible. Is that, and it doesn't have to be as big as that. If we discovered that we had accidentally caused someone a big loss, you know, mm-hmm. so if it's bad enough to, you know, drive into a tree and damage your car. But if you drive into somebody else's car, you feel worse because you've ruined their car, mm-hmm. right? Even though the action was the same or the degree of mistake or error was the same. Um, but there's also good morning. Hi, 
It's okay. We're glad you're here. But there's also an element where sometimes things don't feel so serious to us. Not everything is something big like that, especially if we don't see the damage to somebody else. One, one example, actually this is... I've been enjoying... <laughs> I've been enjoying reading. I don't remember where it is in here, but I've been enjoying reading Rabbi Hillel's book on Judaism, really. <laughs> all kinds of topics. It's called Ascending Jacob's Ladder, and I've had it for years and just came out of storage. I'm like, wow. I must, might have read this before. I don't know, but it's an amazing book. I'm so excited. And he says in there, I think, yeah, he quotes in there a story of the Vilna Gaon, and he says the Vilna Gaon once um, picked uh, on Shabbos, thank you, on Shabbos he picked up a small piece of bread to eat it, and as he brought it to his mouth, he saw that it was moldy. So he dropped it, and he fainted, because he, if it was moldy bread, it didn't have a purpose, and it was muktza. And he was so upset, it was completely an accident. He thought it was something he was going to eat. So he said his wife saw what happened, and she knew him very well and understood. So she picked it up and popped it in her mouth. I guess it was just a little bit moldy, maybe. So she decided, you know, it's still, you could eat it. You wouldn't want to, but so you could. So she ate it. Yeah, and she like demuktified it. <laughs> because if you could eat it so that it's not so mukta, it's not really mukta. And he was very relieved. But he brought, the, he brought this story. He brought this story as an example of a kind of sensitivity, I imagine. It, could, it must have been in the middle of a meal also. Because otherwise you wouldn't make the bracha until you had first checked to make sure you're ready to eat yeah. the food. If, if people who are very careful with their brachos so first you make sure you have a little piece and it's the right size to put in your mouth and you know except for when you're making mozi over the big loaf then you and even then you might cut it beginning um but he was bringing this point like how like that wouldn't really be our reaction we wouldn't be that but we'd say whoops you know like <laughs> at, at best you know we would maybe have the part of dropping it <laughs> you know, oh, it's muktzah. You know, like if we even realize that that's muktzah, you know, our thoughts of muktzah are usually electronic. I think, like, if you ask most sm- young children, not so young children, elementary school age kids in America what muktzah means, they'll tell you it's something with buttons, anything electric. Now, it's true that electronic things tend to be muktzah, but that's not the definition of muktzah. So it's a category, and it's not even a very well-defined category because there are things that are electronic that are not muktza on Shabbos, or, or you know, only muktza to a certain degree, or whatever. Anyway, that laws of muktza are reasonably complicated. The point is that there's a kind of sensitivity to doing something accidentally that depends on how serious you think the results, the consequences are of what you've done, the impact. So while we wouldn't feel that way about accidentally driving into someone's car, we would feel really, really bad about that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you borrowed someone's car and drove into a tree instead of your own car, you feel worse. Mm-hmm. But that, that's good, meaning that's a sign of our sense of responsibility and our appreciation for the fact that of damaging somebody. There's plenty of people, though, by the way, I think it would be very, very common, not necessarily very, very lofty, for people to say, well, it's a good thing it was a rented car, 
<laughs> because at least you didn't damage your own. The insurance going to pay for it anyway, right? And we figure, well, the, you know, Avis or Hertz or Dollar, they don't have a personal, you know, like if you borrowed your, your neighbor's car or your friend's car oh and had an accident, you feel much worse. <laughs> if it was a rented car, I mean, either way, hopefully if the car's insured, so the insurance going to pay for it or you'll take responsibility either way. But there isn't that emotional part you know hurts the hurts guy behind the counter really like you know as long as the company is doing well enough to keep him employed it's not really <laughs> a matter nice. and somebody you know somebody pays for it then it, it doesn't really matter so then was our sensitivity really to the damage that we did or was it to the relationship or how we feel you know there's there's like all these other things going on inside of us um so I, I think, if anything, it kind of brings us like this maharal is like a very deep insight, kind of a psychological insight, which is when something's by accident, we don't feel so at fault. And there's truth to that. <laughs> I mean, the whole, obviously, if it was accidental, I mean, it's not purely, shogeki means negligent, but it's the kind of, it doesn't necessarily have to be criminal negligence. It can be just if you had been paying attention, then you, you know, if you had thought about what day is it before you flipped the light switch, then you wouldn't have done, you know, if you had taped up the switch before Shabbos, it wouldn't have happened. It doesn't mean that what you did was, you know, like ignoring something blatantly that you should have paid attention to. This is kind of, you know, but I think it has to do with our lack of appreciation for the impact of what we've done that can make it difficult to actually feel inside that we did do anything. But, you know, and I also think in different cases, there's different things that different people will just respond to. You know, we have, we each have our things that seem that we can relate to it either because something happened to us, so we know how it feels, or it's something we, you know, if it's something you worked on a lot and then it still happened, you feel worse. If you've been working really hard on how you talk to people, or not speaking Lush and Hara, or using a pleasant tone of voice, or not losing your temper, and then you do, you feel worse than maybe someone who hasn't been putting so much attention on it, even though you might be doing better. Maybe two years ago you lost your temper every week, and now it's once in a year, but you might feel worse about it because you're more tuned into the issue. Okay. So I saw in, in connection with the, not with that idea, but with this idea of, um, of the different levels of sin and how they could affect someone, there's a very interesting a comment from the Ben Ishai in the Ben Yehoyada referring to Yosef and his brothers. So at the end, when Yaakov was already, had passed away, the brothers came back to Yosef and they said, you know, we talked to our dad about this and he it really urged you to forgive us. And there was this whole question, I think we did this maybe two years ago, <laughs> did they actually talk to their dad about this? Doesn't seem like it, because Yosef's like, well, you know, I never mentioned it to him, so how do you know about it? <laughs> did you, you told him, really? Like, you went, to, you went to our father and said, by the way, you know, a long time ago, we sold Yosef, if you're wondering why you didn't see him for so long. Like, I don't think you did that, and it wasn't me who mentioned it, so I think you're just asking me to forgive you, but you're embarrassed, right? <laughs> you're scared. I'm going to do something to you, so you're saying that it was dad, and you're doing that on the basis that you were assuming that I told him. I never told them. Okay, so in the context of this conversation, however you learn it out, they attribute to their father saying, Ana sana pesha achecha 
please forgive the pesha of your brothers. And we said pesha is the more serious chait, the chatosam, and their shogeg chait. Okay, so all of this requires, though, that you have this sense of what order, right? So we said, really, what we would eat, we would try and get our nerve up first with the small things to ask forgiveness for, and only afterward ask for the big things, even though we would hope that in the forgiving, Mm -hmm. God would do it in the other direction to get the stain out. Okay, so once you know that, you would read this Pasuk differently. You say, you know, it's a little funny. They're kind of coming, they're asking, they're, they're using their father's name, but they're really asking Yosef to forgive them, and they're starting with the Pesha first and only afterward the Chet. That should strike us as odd now that we've learned this. So he says it's really astonishing, because he was clearly more tuned in than we were. This is astonishing why they first mentioned Pesha before Chet. When Chet is typically defined as a Chet that is Bishkaga, not intentional. And in general, it is more appropriate to first ask for the thing that is lighter, less serious, and to emphasize, they should have emphasized the chait that was by accident before they bring up, sort of ease him into it, you know, and then the mezid, the intentional. So, you know, it, it, he says it's in, the, in a model of not only this, but even that. Mm-hmm. You, that's kind of the way it goes. I hope you'll forgive me for barging in and getting mud all over the house. It's sort of like not only for this, but even for the bigger crime but here it's the opposite so he says perhaps we can answer that what's going on here has to do with a disconnect there's a sort of a the the effects are not coupled are not paired the way they normally would be of the intention and the deed of what happened with the brothers so what does he mean by that he says Obviously, they had a certain intention that is the bad intention over here, which is getting rid of Yosef. And the Pesha is worse than the Chet. But from Yosef's point of view, as the one who was the victim of this, that it happened to, he actually suffered more from their Chet than from their Pesha. And he's going to explain which is the Chet and which is the Pesha. Mm-hmm even though that wasn't their intention. So the, they did a Pesha and a Chet. Pesha is worse than Chet, because Pesha is what they intended to do to him. And Chet was not what they intended. But it happens to be he suffered more from what they didn't intend than from what they did. He said the greatest suffering was Hasevel Harav. He says this great burden that he, that he bore was being sold as a slave, as a Jewish slave in Mitzrayim. It had two aspects that were bad about it. The first was Sevo Hagufani. He had physical suffering. He was in a pit. He was, you know, tied up in chains. He was working, I don't know, what kind of crazy hours he had to work and what kind of heavy burdens he had to carry and what kind of food he had to not eat because there was nothing kosher. You know, who knows what he was dealing with. He said you could sum that up as a person who is accustomed to being free. And he wasn't just free. He was from a leading family. And the, a privileged younger son of a leading family. He didn't even have to do a lot of chores because there were people much older than him. And he turns into the, a lowly slave in a strange country. 
He's a stranger, he's a foreigner, he's a slave, he's nothing. With no family, no connections. He says the second bad thing that happened to him was the emotional suffering. And, and maybe he means here even not so much emotional, but spiritual suffering. Which is, he was a pure, well-educated young man, taught by Yaakov Avinu, the Holy One, who finds himself, you know, dropped in West Hollywood as a slave. <laughs> He's not just living, you know, near Melrose because that's where the shuls are. Being sold as a slave in a low area, the wife of Potiphar is not to be unexpected. If anything, that would be the least of the problems he might have had to deal with. And in the land of Egypt, which is called Ervas Mitzrayim, like the nakedness of Egypt, even if you, even if you read like things about the history of Egypt, like outside of Jewish culture, it's clear that ancient Egypt was an extremely immoral country. That, I mean, I guess that was their morals, right? The place where the, the klipa of hate is very strong. So the suffering that he had spiritually, he said, that's really a thousand times worse than the physical suffering. That kind of anguish and, and the challenge and the difficulty of trying to just remember who he is and what his values are, that was a thousand times worse. Especially when you're talking about someone like Yosef HaTzadik. So he suffered more from the spiritual affliction than the physical affliction, even though that was also really bad. But his brother's intention was only the physical side. It ne- they didn't sell him to Egyptians. It ne- it was, it, that was after the fact. They sold him to a caravan of Ishmaelites, who then went on and sold him to Egyptians. So the brothers didn't have any... I mean. They can't say they didn't have anything to do with it because they sold him into a state of bondage where he can be bought and sold. But they certainly never, it never occurred to them that they were sending him to Egypt. You know, their little brother is going to Egypt. Like that was not part of what they were thinking. So that, but you can't say they're not responsible, but it's a hate. It wasn't the mazid. The mazid was selling him into physical bondage. The hate, the shogeg, was selling him to Egypt. So the, the, the suffering of his body, that's their mazid. What does that word mean? Their intentional sin. Oh, okay. That's what they did on purpose. And so But they, is unintentional. Oh, okay. But it never occurred to them how, how much worse it could be than what they were starting off with. What they thought they did to him actually was much worse. Well, no, sorry. What actually they did to him was worse than what they thought they were doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... He says, when they came to ask forgiveness for Yose, from Yosef for all the suffering that he suffered by their hands, it occurred to them that it would be proper to emphasize first their pesha, their intentional sin, whereas normally we would say you start with the lighter sin and then you go to the heavier sin and you kind of work your way in. But they realized by now, this is years later, they realized that Lamaisa, like in the end, what they had done, their big sin was really the least of the suffering that they had caused Yosef. 
And it was only after that that they asked him forgiveness for his greater suffering, not their greater sin, but his greater suffering, which was their hate that they caused by sending him to Mitzrayim and setting him up with all these much more difficult tests to his spirituality. And he doesn't say it here, but it's such an interesting sensitivity in a very positive way. Like this amazing sensitivity to real better late than never to realize right that 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 when you're asking forgiveness it's not about yourself i think there's a kind of a lesson there about it's easy sometimes even asking forgiveness to be selfish right it's almost yom kippur so you want to get it off your slate or whatever or you're just sort of routinely kind of saying, well, do you forgive me? Do you forgive me? Do you forgive me? Do you forgive me? And then the person says, I'm not, maybe not. And you're like, well, okay. I remember girls doing this in high school. They would say, they would ask everyone, everyone quickly, right before you leave school, like the day before, you know, you forgive me, you forgive me, you mocha me, you mocha me, you mocha me, you mocha me, right? And if someone would say no, then it's like, oh, so you just ask them two more times because there's this halacha that if you ask someone to forgive you three times and they don't, now it's their problem, right? <laughs> Nothing, no thought about like, well, what does it mean to ask someone forgiveness? Do you need to specify? Like, if the person says no, then you might want to say, oh, did I do something to you that really hurt you so much that it's hard for you to forgive me? Like, what is it? What could I do to rectify? No, no thought of that. Just like, well, I'll ask you two more times. Now it's your problem, right? It's kind of like, I don't, I don't think it works that way. Right. Right, but they're right. But they mean it. If you would say that you had a problem, they wouldn't just say, well, I'll ask you two more times and now it's your problem, right? They love you, you know? But they know, you know, you like with parents, it's so easy. It's too easy to like actually mess up. It doesn't, doesn't mean they have something specific in mind. It means that even if they don't, it's the odds are that they've done something without realizing it, so they better ask, you know? And hopefully you're a loving parent, like the Abu Dharam described, and the loving parent is able to let things go with their kids and say, you know, they didn't mean it. And so I forgive them, and it's fine. But this idea that there's a kind of really asking forgiveness that comes from not just recognizing that you've done wrong, but recognizing that you've hurt somebody else. And that in forgiving you, the person is going to be dealing with or letting go of the pain that they've had and that they asked for the forgiveness in light of that. Not in light of what their issues were, but in light of what his issues were, is really, I don't know, kind of remarkable. Yeah, sorry, you were waiting to say something before. I heard that a lot of the, the spiritual pain that Yosef had was the separation from his father and his inability to contact his father because if he contacted his father, he would be... Could be. I don't know if that's spiritual pain. It could be. Because well, then he's not able to do keep it of aim or whatever, but right. it might but be emotional he, pain. I don't yeah, know. emotional pain maybe, but still he was, you know, he, it, it all had to do with the fact that he never did tell his father what the brothers did. And the brothers all along thought that he had told Right. I mean, now we're referring to a different period of time, right? Because not contacting his father, that's 22 years that he was sold away. Right. But right. after his father came back, he lived in, what was it, 17 more years he lived in right. Egypt? So right. we're talking about the end of that time. Right. So but now they're, they're assuming he must have told his during, dad. Right. During right. The 22 years when he withheld himself from contacting right. his dad, that was... 
like the, one of the harder parts. That was one of the harder parts. It doesn't address that. That could, I mean, conceivably that could go in the physical category. It kind of depends That's how you're dividing it up, right? Because the emotional state is really a little bit more on the physical side. I don't know how he's dividing it up, but I don't know how strictly he's dividing it up. Uh, right, he's, he's saying there's like the the different aspects of his suffering and that one was actually worse than the other, but I don't know how he's dividing it up. But what they're, when they're talking over here, this is the, literally the end. This is like the last chapter or something of Bereshus. Perak Nun is like, I think Memtes is Yaakov's brachos. Yeah. Nun is like this really short little, it's not so short, but it's the last Perak of Bereshus. Oops, I just lost my place. Well, yeah, and it's after he died, so, and then, and the Pasuk ends with the fact that he cried, that Yosef cried when they asked him this. I mean, it's a very, you know, it's fair, it's understandable that they would think he would have said something. Because the reasons for not contacting his father while he was in Egypt are totally different than the reasons for not telling him what happened. You can imagine 17 years of living in contact that Yosef, Yaakov might have said, like, what happened that day? Like, what happened? I, do you have any idea? Like, you know, we found your coat and it was all bloody. Like, it's, he may not have asked. He may have just figured, you'll tell me when you're ready. But certainly, it's reasonable that the brothers thought they must have discussed this, either because Yosef loved his father and just wanted to tell, unburden himself and tell him what happened to him, or something. And he could have said it in a nice way, and he could have said, look, like he told his brothers, Hashem did this, this wasn't, you know, I hold nothing against him, I don't want you to hold anything against him, against the, bo- the brothers, you know. But it turns out he said nothing. He just, I guess he didn't feel that the the toelis, that there was a, a productive value to doing that. Mm-hmm. That it would be, it would satisfy curiosity and concern, but, and it would, you know, get something off of his chest, but he would have to do that elsewhere. Right. Because it Just runs the risk of putting a wedge between his father and his brothers. You can't ask forgiveness if you think it's going to make the other person feel worse. Feel worse. It can be a problem. Then you're, but then you're really stuck. It's a problem. <laughs> Sometimes it happens. Yeah. Sometimes it happens because the, if you're gonna, especially if you're gonna specify, right? So yeah. you call them every room kipper when they're really busy and say you mochel me. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I didn't mean that. Okay. It's not. It's only. That's only satis, That's only somewhat satisfactory when you actually don't know that you've done something wrong. You just, yeah. in case yeah. you did, that's what they will do. you please forgive yeah. me? You know, it's appropriate maybe between a husband and a wife who, who hopefully when things have gone on, they have sorted them out along the way. Mm-hmm. And yet when you live in close proximity to other people or you work in close proximity or it's your children, there, odds are you might have said, even just said something not in such a covetic way or something like that where the other person might not have even really been offended or if they were they just let go of it that's you know then you could kind of maybe generally ask because you're not even sure what you're asking about but but when you know I don't think it works (laughs) okay so that I, I but I really loved the way that whole question comes out of that sensitivity to what order would you ask and realizing this order is reversed 
And then the, what he proposes is that the order is not actually reversed, right? It's that they're doing it from the point of view of Yosef, not from the point of view of their own sin. Okay. Um, okay. Here's another point about the Chet and the Pesha. So this is quoting from Rav Yonasan Ivashitz in the Yaros Tavash, who says, Chet is Chad Peami, which does not mean what it means in modern Hebrew per se, which means disposable. It means one-time use. <laughs> okay, so you can have cups that are Chad Peami, which are disposable cups, because you use them once. Okay, but a Chet means a one-off affair. You did something, it happened once, it's not something you're constantly doing wrong. It was, whether it's an accident, right, we've been defining it as chait is a shogeg, unintentional, and pesha is the mazed, the intentional, but he says there's another distinction, which is that chait is a one-off. Pesha is multiple times. A sin that someone is committing over and over again. Like a person, he said, who forgot to prepare an Erev Tavshilin several times, is called in the Gemara of Hoshea. So I hope I'm not going to upset anybody too badly. Talk to your rabbi afterwards. Erev Tavshilin is just an, it's a very strange halacha in this way. Um, I, I, I've certainly never heard of this halacha in any other continuation. He doesn't even mention it here. I heard this last time I was in Israel, I think. It's the first time that I happened to hear this come up. Because um, I didn't learn the halacha inside. So an Erev Tavshilin is a special kind of Erev that we make before a yontif starts, where the yontif falls before a Shabbos mm -hmm. with no space in between. And what we do is we take food that we started cooking already for Shabbos before yontif, and we make a bracha for an Erev over it. And in doing that, the, the, because the Chachamim made a takana that you're not allowed to cook on yontif for the Shabbos following it, because that's still preparing for the next day. So the Chachamim, when they did that, they said, however, if you already started cooking for Shabbos before, you can continue. Okay, they could do that because you can, they could create their own loophole to their own takana. Okay, so that, that, that's an important principle, by the way. When Chacham, you have things like that, like um, Prisbal. Okay, when Shemitah comes, when Shemitah comes around, debts become relieved. When the Beis Hamikdash was already destroyed, and most of the Jews were in Gullus in Rome, but there were still many Jews in Israel. Um, yeah. Um, the question then became: Now the now the Shemitah Ksafim was not a Torah prohibition. It wasn't a Torah law. It was a rabbinic law. It's still in. I mean, you still have to keep it. Right? But the degree of it is now no longer a Delraisa, it's a Derabanan, which is why it was possible to create a prisbal, meaning to say we see a problem, which is people are reluctant now to lend money for a year or two years before Shemitah because they're afraid they won't get it back. So since it is the Chachamim who are saying you have to keep this law, the Chachamim can say we're going to also make an exception to the law. Okay? Chachamim cannot make an exception to a Torah law. It's not. Torah wants to make an exception to a Torah law, the Torah will make an exception to the Torah law, but the Chachamim can't do that. But the Chachamim can do is make an exception to their own law. Okay? So, Erev Tavshilin, the Chachamim said, if you started cooking for Shabbos before Yontif even started, you can continue, since technically you can cook on Yontif anyway, you may continue cooking on Yontif, and it's not called preparing for after Yontif. 
It's part of what you need to do on Yontif is the Erev Shabbos stuff. Okay, so that's called an Erev Tavshilin. What happens if you forgot to make an Erev Tavshilin? Okay, the fact is you can't cook on Yontif then for after Yontif, even for Shabbos. I thought there was that community. So then the question is, rabbis will make one that includes the whole community. Oh, yeah. Um, as a, like a safety net. In case somebody forgot to make their Erev Tavshilin, then at least they can go check with the Rav. I, we have had it happen where the rabbis have forgotten to do it. This, I'm not, not recently, not rabbis that are here now. <laughs> not, but, but, okay. in, in years gone by, where we've had the rabbi knock on the door and say, uh-oh, I forgot to make the Erev Tavshilin. <laughs> No, did. We did. <laughs> for the city, for the for the community. Well, only if you had that in mind, which we fortunately had. But that's this is an unusual situation in a small community over here. Okay, um, yeah, but it's not generally for everyone. It's really the rabbi who adds those words for the whole community. Um, but there are halachos about being able to rely on the rabbi doing that. So that's why I'm saying you need to talk to a rabbi and don't wait till before Yantif. <laughs> Find out. Because it turns out that the way the halacha is phrased, I had no idea of this. I just knew you have to make your own. And it's true that rabbis make them for a whole community as a fallback. But in order that people should not habitually rely on that, you are supposed to make your own Erev Tavshilin. That's why people send reminders, right? Remember, Erev Tavshilin because you're not supposed to rely on somebody else having done it for you. The way the halacha is phrased, it can be read. I'm not, it, I've heard it read this way. It's pretty clear that that's not, in fact, how it's meant to be read, but it can be understood that a person can rely on that only once in their life. Oh. Yeah, Ooh. that's why I said talk to a rabbi. That's why <laughs> talking about this. Okay, once, a one time, if you forgot once, because otherwise people will say, well, never mind, it's not such a big deal, I don't have to, and it is a very big deal, you need to have an air of tafshilin, just like if you're going to carry outside in a place where it's rabbinically forbidden to carry outside on Shabbos, you must have an air of chatzeros. So, I mean, what if you do forget? So, that's what I said, you have to ask Rabbi. Call up, ask her off. And you don't have to wait till like Erev Yantif to ask. Right. <laughs> you could just ask yeah, now. When... Say, you know, could you invite me for Shabbos? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and, and it's a real question. Can you light Shabbos candles? Wow. Mm-hmm. Because when you light Shabbos candles, you don't light them when it's already Shabbos. No. You're not allowed to light any fires on Shabbos, right? You got to light your candles on Erev Shabbos for Shabbos. So there's a question. That's why it's always an issue. Let's say you're out for both meals. Could be that you should make an air of shilling anyway. You're thinking, I don't have to cook. But you do have some fire slides. So these are all questions for a Rav. I don't know exactly how we paskin and, you know, but these are, these are actual issues. And it's definitely easier for your rabbi if you ask him now and not Erev Pesach. When he has a lot of other kinds of shilas coming in also. <laughs> like, just get it out of the way now. Okay. So, not to traumatize anybody. But apparently, the Gemara... And I did not look up the Gemara, but according to this very reliable source, which we have counted on many times for other things, quoting Ravionis and Ibishitz, meant quotes that the Gemara, in talking about Erev Tavshilin, a person who forgot to prepare an Erev Tavshilin several times is called a poshea. Okay? 
one who does a pesha. That's called an intentional sinner. That's scary. Okay. Now, I've, I'm assuming that since we didn't know about this halacha beforehand, it can't be that we were intentionally sinning because we didn't even know. Okay. So let's, let's put it that way. But, like I said, talk to a rock. Okay. The Gemara clearly, though, takes this very strong, as a very strong problem. Okay. So, Rav Yonas and Ibishitz goes on to say, we have slicha. Oh, a little bit off track here. We have slicha relating to chait, where the chait is just a one-time thing. A person accidentally, or you know, because they weren't paying so much attention, they did something wrong, and slicha erases the sin as if it never was. We had we've had this idea before, but he's saying in this way why. Because you did something wrong and you ask forgiveness for the thing you did wrong and so it's done. It's gone. He says, this is the Rav Yonas and Ibishit's approach. It's not identical to the way we've been learning it. He says, Mechila works from, from this moment forward. This sort of, he says, it's like forgiving a debt. The person says, okay, until you didn't, all this time you didn't pay me, you owed me. But now that I'm forgiving the debt, you no longer owe it to me going forward. So I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not upset with you anymore. Okay, we can go forward. We can build our relationship again. There's no hard feelings. But it doesn't necessarily work backward to erase what happened until the forgiveness was asked. Um, and so he says with slicha, you would not expect to see any after effects of the sin at all. It's as if it's gone. Whereas with mechila, there still could be some kind of yasurim that would go along with the mechila in order to totally remove the impact of the sin. Okay. Now, I saw in a different source, this is the Siddur HaGaon of HaMakubalim, which also quotes the Yarostvash, Rav Yonas and Ibershitz, on the same thing, but, may, but brings a different point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> kind of put them together here. Which is, when it comes to the sin that's the chait, that's the one-off, we say avinu. And when it comes to the pashanu, which Rav Yonas and should translate as continual, like more than once sins, we talk to God as malkeinu, our, our king. Why? Because when it comes to a pesha, sinning over and over again, then it would be worse to be a son than to be a servant. Mm. It, that would be a harsher thing. He says, you see it in halacha. You could have a son who becomes a ben sorer umore and gets stoned to, to death. Or a son who curses his father or hits a father and draws blood. Right? If you, if you draw blood from a parent, it could be chay of misa. That's not true of a servant. Okay? I mean, there might be some, he might have sinned and done a punishment, but it would be hard to get to a point of high of Misa for those kinds of things. When it comes to the Chatoim, though, it's the opposite. Because if it's a, if it's a lighter sin, whether it's because it's the Shogate Chait or it's a one-off kind of thing, it just happened this one time. It, it, by accident, oh, I forgot to move the car and now you got the ticket, right? Like we we're saying with the moving cars. You told me to move the car and I completely lost track of time. I was busy reading and I didn't move it. And now you got a ticket. I'm so sorry. It's easy for a father to forgive that. So he just lets it go. So he says, with Chatoim, we therefore ask in terms of 
you are our father, and <laughs> we are the sons. And when it comes to Pashaim, then we say, you are the king, and we are the servant. It's kind of trying to use the part of the relationship that will be most least, least demanding to relate to this particular problem. Okay. Now we have the introduction, though, of something new. Hello. Good morning. Okay. Which is, so now we've talked a lot about having slachanu ki chatanu, machalanu ki pashanu, and then the order reversed, ki mocha v'soleachata, and then the bracha ends with, baruch Hashem chanun hamar belisloach. So now we have some questions about chanun. What, what is it doing here? What does it mean? Because we haven't been talking about chanun until now. We've been talking about slicha and mechila, but not chanun. So what's chanun? Um, I think the typical, what's the typical translation? Something to do with grace. Right? Gracious. Gracious to marbel Islam, to forgive a lot. Okay. So what is this graciousness? What is this Hanun? So the Tosfos Harash brings, because there's a lot of different places where Hanun comes up, uh, including we're going to see afterward, like one of the name, one of the descriptions Hashem gives of his Midos that we say like on Yom Kippur, Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachum Vechanun, right? So Hanun comes up. Mm-hmm. And, and that also helps, will help us to understand what it has to do with the forgiveness. Because Hanun is graciousness, then why specific, what does it have to do with forgiveness? Okay, so Hanun, according to the Tosos Harash, Hanun is when Hashem is Honein, gives freely, we haven't translated it yet, really, in a time of urgency. Somebody cries out for help, and Hashem saves them. And this is specifically referring to the fact of someone who is Hanun, I mean, we're talking about Hashem, but the situation of Hanun is when Hashem has the power or uses the power to, to bring that salvation to the one crying out for it, even though it's not really justified. The person doesn't have a real claim or a right to be saved. They might not be an innocent victim, and yet God steps in to save them when they cry out for help. Okay, so you imagine somebody appeals to the, to the judge for clemency and the judge can forgive him, but really he was guilty. But he might feel like, look, it's enough that he got thrown into jail even overnight. Like, he really learned the lesson. We don't have to actually enforce, like, why should we keep him there at state expense for three years? Like, just let him out. It'll, in the long run, it'll be fine. Okay, having that ability to reach out and save somebody freely, meaning beyond what is coming to them by right. That's Hanun. Um, he says, and, and really, all, the only reason they have for earning or deserving this salvation is that they cried out for it and Hashem listened to them cry out. So that's one definition of Hanun. Good to see you. Okay. There's also the suggestion, the word Hanun, of its connection to the word Chinam. Chinam means sort of um, free or without obligation, without further obligation. The Ramban says in Shmos, 
that Hashem is Chanun, he is Chonin Umekabel Kol Adam Afalpisha Eno Hagun, that he is gracious to and receives every person, even Alpisha Eno Hagun, even though it's not appropriate. It doesn't mean like the way we use appropriate as a euphemism for like really horrible, meaning really this, it's appropriate this person should not be welcomed into you know, the presence of the king after what he's done. Hashem receives him anyway. It's the same concept, that idea that Hashem is coming above and beyond what a person really deserves and is coming to greet the person anyway. And that's the same concept of chinam, freely and without obligation. God says, I am chanun. I hear the cries of whoever pleads. Mitchanen is like to plead. But that's why it means lehitchanen is to plead is because it's one who is asking for the mida of chonen to be applied to them that I don't deserve anything. I'm crying out to you anyway. Not because I think I have a good argument. Not because I think I have you know, a, a new angle on this case that I think will cause you to judge me differently, but just because I'm crying out to you anyway. And I'm hoping that you'll hear me anyway. That's where Hanun comes in. Okay. Whoops, this is a, a little different point, which is the Hanun Hamarbe Lisloach. I didn't mean to stick it in between all the other Hanuns, but may as well put it here. Next, for next time, I'll move it up to the front one. Um, <laughs> Which is a muscle that's given that if the king is in a good mood and is feeling expansive, then he's liable to offer like an amnesty. And in fact, we see this for sure going back, right, where um, Yosef was in jail and the officer was going to be let out. And when it was the king's birthday, that was when they were going to reevaluate the prisoners, right? It was Paro's birthday. And they're going to reevaluate and say, okay, you know, no, you're, you're still, we're not letting you out anyway, in which case off with his head. But if you, not so bad, then maybe you'll get clemency. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll get some kind of, uh, what was the word? I just used it, amnesty. Right, they'll forgive you and let you out, and that's sort of part of the king's birthday. And I think that that's in many places, meaning where the royalty, when it's their birthday, or there's a celebration, or they're celebrating that they've won a war. Right, there's this feeling of now I'm going to do all kinds of nice extras, right, for the people in the kingdom. So he says, in that situation, a person would be wise to take it to take advantage of this opportunity where there's like the king's in a good mood and ask to be forgiven for what he's done wrong. However, it would be foolish, you know, you write in that you're, you're asking, you know, you haven't paid your taxes for 10 years um, and you'd write in and say, you know, could the king please forgive me for that and I will pay, you know, on an installment plan or something, you know, make some kind of, okay, fine. We won't, we won't pursue you for it. If then when you were standing there, you'd say, oh, so while we're at it, and we've talked about this as, as what we do do with God, but with a king, we would not normally stand there and say, oh, so I also have like 45 outstanding parking tickets plus 
there's um, this issue with my kids where they do a lot of shoplifting. And sometimes I park on your property without permission, without paying the parking <laughs> fees. And I figured out that you could sneak out, you know, through the stables or something. You know, if he starts loading it on, the king, even, even if he says it and he really is sorry and he really regrets it, the king is going to be like, I'm not forgiving you anything. Never mind. Go, <laughs> go talk to your tax attorney. <laughs> like, this is not, right? Like, what are you doing here? It's one thing, you made, so you made a mistake and you're asking me to pardon you. So great, but you're telling me that over and over again in so many different ways, you've intentionally gone against my, like, what are you doing here? I don't, okay. His chances of gaining clemency are greatly reduced. As long as you think it's one sin, the king can look at it as an isolated incident. It's the exception to the rule. But as soon as you start explaining that this is, in fact, the rule, this is your normal behavior, that I'm not forgiving you. Okay. But that's not the case of Hashem. He is abundantly forgiving. This is the Hanun Hamar Belisloach. Hashem is, in fact, abundantly forgiving. And even if someone is guilty of many transgressions in the Torah, if he confesses and really repents of them, Hashem will forgive him. You never need to be afraid of talking to God about what you've done wrong and trying to make it better. It's, it doesn't matter how many more things you tell him about. He's not going to be less forgiving because of that. He says in a similar way that that's true of a multitude of sins or even the same sin a multitude of times. Let's say someone comes and says, I, I didn't pay my taxes on time last year. I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. And the king says, okay, fine. Just get them filed. And the next year he comes back with the same thing. I didn't get my taxes filed in time. Please forgive me. Uh-huh. And the third year, and the fourth, he says, say, enough. Like, pay your taxes. That's all. On time. File them by April 14th then, or earlier. I don't, like, because once you're doing it over and over again, you're, this is a pattern. <coughs> <coughs> but Hashem keeps the door open to us. Thank you. And even if we keep falling back, we come and we really do do tshuva. And we really try and make it better. And Hashem will forgive us. And then we fall back into the same pattern again, right? We talked about a person who gets angry, they just get angry less often. Hashem will still forgive them. It can still come back. And this also ties into that idea of the forgiveness that's like the difference between forgiveness that reaches back and makes it all gone, like it never happened, versus a kind of forgiveness that's from here on in. Generally speaking, the forgiveness of the king is sort of here on in. Okay, fine. So from now on, right? But Hashem will give us all the way backwards so that no trace of the sin remains when he forgives us. And not only that, but he even helps us. <laughs> he even helps us, gives us little pushes and boosts. Once we start wanting to ask for forgiveness and do tshuva, he will help boost us in that direction too. Okay. So Hanun, we have this addition of the Hanun. Okay. Um, ah, so this was a different question, sorry. Which is Hanun Hamar Belisloach, and now we're not talking about Mechila at all. First we had Slicha and Mechila, then we had Mechila and Slicha, and now we have only Slicha and no Mechila. 
So we have three sources here that deal with that. Let's see what we've got. See, my notes are really out of order because now I'm jumping around from the Chanon to the Mechila to the Slicha. Oh, well. <laughs> Leave space. Make asterisks or something. <laughs> okay. backwards in time versus forwards in time. Like if you forgive someone a debt forwards in time, how is that not forgiven backwards in time? I think that it might not erase whatever the impact was backwards. So if there was something, okay, we're not, we don't normally charge interest but if it was some kind of deal where there was an interest owed or there was some kind of, you know, you might still have to do some kind of reparation if you caused me damage by not paying it back in time. Like what, what happened to the fact now that I had to borrow more money? So with a heter iska, I could demand that back, the extra that I had to pay because I was now getting behind. So I'm forgiving you your debt, but you still have to compensate There's me. Still, yeah, or, or maybe you should ask forgiveness for that too. Like. Yeah. You know, like there's still something, we can go forward. Uh-huh. Or maybe, maybe it's even more similar to is like the tax thing. Well, you know what? Okay, so pay me now the taxes that you owe. Uh-huh. But I'm not going to add on a fine and all these other things. Like, and we're not going to charge you more in the future because you're a bad prospect. Uh-huh. <laughs> we had, um, so that's going forward. So <laughs> I, was, I was tidying up like a stack of paper. And in the stack of paper, I found a letter from the insurance company that said, <coughs> we, this is a year ago, we have determined that this accident was not your fault. If you have a problem with that, feel free to talk to us. Obviously, we didn't <laughs> follow up on it because we didn't have not have a problem with the fact that this little car accident was not your fault. Okay, so I handed it to my husband and I said, oh, you might still want to file this paper. Like the other papers in the puzzle look very important, but this one seems like something to keep on file. He's like, my husband said, like, where'd this come from? It was right there. He said, because they raised our rates over that. <laughs> so <laughs> he says, this so he calls them up and he says, you know, you sent me a letter dated like whatever that said that you had determined that this wasn't our fault. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, sorry. You know, so, so reduce the rates again. yeah, 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 we'll reduce the rates and we'll pay you back like the difference. But like, you know, insurance companies, they have no motivation when it comes to having overcharge. You always have to audit everything. It's unbelievable. Anyway, so, you know, sometimes you can have something where, like, you say, well, let's forgive this going backward, but what about the fact of all the money? It's not going to fix that. Like, <laughs> so you could be annoyed about it. You could just say, okay, never mind. We'll just go forward. Like, as long as we sorted it out, we're fine going forward, you know. But, I mean, it was whatever amount it was. I don't know that it was such a big rate increase, you know. <laughs> but, like, whatever it is, by the time you go, like, a year down the line, if you're paying an extra 50 or $100 a month, it adds up to something. There's something you probably would have done with the money that you didn't get to do with it. And what are you going to do? Are you going to go and, like, sue them for it? Like, never mind. You just forget. Okay, we'll just go forward. Does that mean that if next month the rate increase is still there, I'll say, oh, never mind. No, of course not. I'm going to say, no, excuse me. Like, right, so... I think there's this, I think that's kind of the distinction over there. Okay. It's sort of... Getting a better handle on it. Yeah, I'm not sure that I have such a handle on it, but I think there, there's somehow where you say it's like it never happened versus, okay, it happened, but from this point forward, we're all clear, we're good. 
and we'll work together and we're happy and we're not charging anybody and we're not insisting on anything and we're not letting any effects from the past affect us going forward. That's what I think it means. Okay. Um, this is one of the things that is in modern times people are finding difficulty like erasing their like internet history. It's like yeah. people can see, oh, you know, that's a good example. This and you posted it on Facebook and it's there forever. And it's like you can never be forgiven for right because these files get cached. Because there's that picture. Right. Even if you remove them, you may not be able to remove it from everywhere. Right. So that's you know that's really hard right. It's to a good example. Go so the advice that you'll usually get is don't post stuff. Well, yeah, but you, but for going forward is post a lot of stuff of the right type, and over time that will tend to overwhelm. The search engine so that if someone's looking they are less and less likely to find what was in the past but that doesn't really actually clear it away no. it just buries it deeper <laughs> okay um okay so this is I left myself a question on this explanation. I think I want to do it anyway, just because I think there's a point here, um, which is why. Why is this like this? And the answer is I'm not entirely sure. I have an idea, a little, but it doesn't, it's not enough. But here's the concept anyway. And this is Baruch Amar of Baruch Halevi Epstein. He brings it actually on the previous bracha, but it applies to many of them, which is... He said, in, in Hashivenu, which is the example that he sort of starts with, he says, we, say, we ask for three things in this bakasha. Hashivenu l'sorasecha, karvenu malkenu l'avodasecha, and hachazirenu b'tshuva shleim alafanecha. But then in the bracha itself, we only ask for tshuva. We ask for Torah avoda tshuva in the request, but in the actual bracha, we mention that Hashem wants tshuva, not Torah avoda. Okay, so you see, it's this, in this bracha also, we have, we're asking for mechila and for slicha, and then we say, chanun hamar b'lisloach, and we don't mention the mechila. Um, he, he says there's other examples. We, have, we describe Hashem as melech ozer umoshia umagain, and we end with magain avraham. Um, and it's over and over. So he says there's many, many examples. Re'evan yenu, we ask for re'evan yenu, see our affliction, rira rivenu, fight our battles. Um, and then in the end, and, and we ask for three different types of Yeshua, and we end with just Geula, Gal Yisrael. This is a very common kind of pattern to see. We're asking for a few things, and yet when we get to the bracha part, somehow is only one thing still there. This is perhaps the reason is that it is a kind of a, a typical expression to first give in detail... And then to mention something and then detail it and then come back to the general. Mm -hmm. So he gives different examples from in the Torah where the thing that you just mentioned, you then break down in detail. Um, and I don't really understand, though, he, meaning he, he kind of just gives examples of that it is that way, but not why it would be that way. Gesundheit. Hey, hey, hey. 
Oi, did that hurt? That one hurt. Sometimes the expression stays even after the feeling. Oi. Okay. But he doesn't explain ever why it is that way, which is a little bit unsatisfying. So I have two thoughts on this. One is that there's a concept of braiding. We have this in Baruch Sha'amar with the word gedula, that unagadelcha, we will uh, be expansive about Hashem or somehow, like, what does that mean? Like, we can't make Hashem any bigger than he is. Um, so it's related to gedilim, which is a, a word that's used for tzitzis because they're like braided and knotted, which is where you take the material, you tease it apart into smaller bits, and then you braid it back together again. And what you end up with is both stronger and more beautiful than how it started before you teased it apart and then tied it back together again. So part of it is this idea of, of a way that we praise Hashem, which I guess applies also to the Bakasha, which is this praising of Hashem. Thank you. Praising Hashem and, and asking of Hashem in detail, which is the teasing it apart but then winding it all back up together again into one whole. So that might be one piece of an explanation as to why this would be a common format, where we express things in details, but then tie them together with just one. Um, there's another thing that, there's, there's a sort of a principle where, at least with Chazal, sometimes they'll give a list of things. The last one is the main one. You would think that maybe the first one should be the most important. Very often the last one is the main one. It's described as the knot on the end of the string. So if you have a string of pearls and you put them all on, the knot is what holds everything else yeah. together. Yeah. Okay, so there is a principle where, at least with Chazal, if they give you a list of things, very often the, the last one is the knot on the end of the string. So I think an example of that, which is probably where I saw it, is statements like this, right? Elu um, devarim. These are things that a person eats the fruits of it, enjoys the fruits of it in this world, and the principle remains in the next world. Right? It's like the knot on the end that holds everything else together. Oh, look at these cute kids. They left. <laughs> they didn't want to disturb, they went around. Okay, so like I said, I don't have like a set. He doesn't really give an explanation, the Baruch Shammar over there. He just says it, it is that way and that it's like that a lot. But I, those two ideas come to mind as possibly helping to understand that. Um, and I'm going to do one. Hmm. I, I would like to do one last one. And then I guess next week finish off this bracha because I don't think we can take quite enough time to finish it off properly now. So we'll do one more piece and finish it next week. So what is intended by the word who is increasing or who, who very much forgives? So this is from Shema Tzvilasi, which is a collection of Divrei Torah from Rav Chaim Kanievsky. Um, some explain that it means that Hashem forgives us also for shagagos, 
Hanasos mitochavonos, meaning that Hashem forgives us even for sins that have been downgraded, like previously bleached, and he bleaches them yet further. So that's the harmaka. That's the idea we talked about. Some say it's that Hashem forgives us even though we have repeated the sin. Not just once, but he'll forgive us for the same sin multiple times if needed. Okay. Um, Rav Chaim Kanyevsky said, based on a Rambam, Rambam says nothing stands in the way of tshuva. Even someone who denied God his whole life, and at the end of his life, he does real tshuva, he has a chilek for olam haba. And there can be someone who sins and intentionally sins, and mishumads is someone who, who converts to another religion, like totally denies God, who does tshuva at the end of his life, and he will be received. That's Hamar Belisloach. That's, that's a lot of space that Hashem allows for a person to do tshuva. Okay, obviously we're not allowed to do that on purpose. Okay, so then in the notes below, the, I don't know who the editor is who pulled these together, there's some extra notes based on his other teachings that help to explain sometimes what he meant, because Rav Kanievsky is known for using very, very minimal words, the least words possible to answer anything. <laughs> so sometimes that can be confusing if you're not accustomed to his manner of explaining things. Okay. So elsewhere, elsewhere he quotes a Yerushalmi. Im tshuva, If a person is doing tshuva, nothing can really stand in his way. There, there's no force that can, right? I mean, the, the extreme case was Menashe, who was a king of Yehuda. He was the son of Chizkiah. And he, after his father, who was so righteous, he introduced idol worship all over the country. I mean, he was really, he was really a problem, <laughs> okay? And when he was being cooked in a cauldron and cried out to all those avodazaras and they didn't help him, in desperation, he turned to God. And the malachim all created, what do you call that? Is that a scrum? Like where all the football players line up to block the play? So all the malachim and shemayim are blocking his tefillos from making any progress. They're like, there is no way we are letting your prayers get through. Okay? It's our job to deliver the prayers. We're supposed to take them out of your mouth and deliver them to God. No way. Okay? We're just tossing them off to the side. We're deflecting them, whatever it takes. They're, sorry? Lost in the mail. Lo- it's lost. Yeah, exactly. There is no way we're letting this get through. That is an insult to God. How dare you? come because the water's starting to simmer, you know, and, and, and you've tried your avodazaras and they're powerless, so now you're going to ask God for help. And Hashem allowed his prayers to somehow zigzag past the malachim and bore a hole straight through under the kisei hakavod to reach him. Okay, now that means the prayers have to have a certain amount of energy going behind them. Clearly. Right? This is not just about God saying, okay, fine, you know, he had to have that. There had to be something real happening there with Menashe. But when the Gemara, when the Yerushalmi says nothing stands in the way, like nothing, 
will stand in the way of real tshuva. Not even all the angels in heaven can stand in the way of someone who's really trying to get back to God, for real. Yeah, something like that. Um, I think, it, my guess is it requires even more than that. Okay. Because I'm not, when you say the gates are closed, it doesn't mean that they were closed in your face. Like, <laughs> they're closed. It's not the moment, maybe. But nonetheless, you can find a way through because you're feeling it so strongly. But this is something, I think, even more than that with the tshuva. Okay. There can be people who, if they don't do tshuva, they have no share in the next world. But if they do tshuva, they can actually have a full share in the next world. The Tana de Be'eliyahu says, even if a person does a hundred of errors, and even if he's standing and cursing heaven, if he repents and he truly, he, all, the par, all the parts to it, right? He regrets it. He feels terrible. He admits that he did wrong. He makes a plan for how he's not going to do it in the future. He faces the same test and he behaves differently. He really does tshuva. Hashem will forgive him. Tana de Be'eliyahu says, even if a person says something very similar, Hashem says, I will be with him mercifully. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, if you do tshuva between you and me, I accept you. So ultimately, that's what it boils down to. That nothing stands in the way of tshuva. And this is Hanun Hamar Belisloach. Meaning there's nobody, including Malachim, can understand, and this is going to be something we'll talk about next time, can understand how the, the intimacy of the specific relationship between Hashem and the individual can overcome anything else. It looks from the outside, even a very high level view, the most just view, it doesn't look right. It doesn't look fair. It doesn't look, and yet Hashem knows what's in the heart of a person. And if it's really there, nothing will get in the way. But they say, like in Yom Kippur, that you know, tshuva starts with making it right between man and man. If you've so sinned for... against man and man. These examples, by the way, were all a person who's standing facing heaven and cursing and slandering God. Right, so. but you know, he like, Set up all the Zara's, and he created problems for a lot of people as well as between himself and God. Yep. So, you know, so there might have been have there might still be consequences to that. Mm-hmm. There might still be consequences to it, right? We have there's slicha, there's mechila, but his tshuva got through. But now the steps he actually was saved, was so he didn't die then. So mm-hmm. I don't know what happened at the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, the steps of Chula, you had to start first with you know, making it right here before you could make it. Sometimes you can't. Yeah. A person at the end of their life, maybe they can't make it right here. Yeah. That, doesn't, that should never discourage anyone from trying to do chuva. Mm-hmm. What it does mean is that there might be a missing piece. Right. And the effects, if, they do, if you don't make it right here, then the effects of what you've done may continue to go on. That's a discouraging thought. But it's the difference between an eternity and Olam Haba and not. Like, you know, you still want to you do what you can. You do what you can. Okay, so next week in Mephashem, we'll 
probably finish off this bracha. I think. And we'll, no, we'll I see where we'll go. Of the Thank you. Yeah. This last week, you know, when we had the yard site for my husband, right. we realized before that that our our crockpot was really no good. It wasn't working good. So we uh, we had to get another crockpot. So Simcoe ordered, ordered a crockpot for us and even said what size and we got it over there, and then Anna had to toil it, and, and, and we finally got it back. And, oh, it's, we're, it's a good crock pot. All right, Shabbos came and we wanted our soup in that. So uh, one of the ladies came a little early to make the soup, and, and, and we were really looking forward to that. And well, uh, Anna and Yoel and the family were there. They realized that Putu, by mistake, and it was my mistake, not hers, that she turned out the crock pot by herself. She mm. turned. Mm-hmm. She turned. And I thought, well, that's not so bad. We won't do it anymore. No. <laughs> Sinko went over to Rabbi After and said, can we use it now? Can we use a soup? He said, no. So I'm ashamed of myself that I, in my mind, was, oh, well, we could have used it once. You know, we had all the trouble with the crowd. And I was ashamed for thinking that. Not one of them even thought that we could possibly use a soup. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, I'm not as from as I thought I was. Why did I have in my mind? And, uh, That's what rabbis are for. They're supposed to know these things. It's okay if we don't know them, as long as we ask, right? So We don't know. So we had the soup. Aww. After, you know, the soup was there. Nobody could eat it. <laughs> and, uh, and I just thought, we just have to know that I, I hadn't come as far as I thought I had come. Why didn't they question it? Nobody questioned it except me. I didn't tell them. It was just right. in my right. in my thoughts. It's true. So we have. To, it's a good opportunity when we catch the thoughts in our mind because they're so quick. They come and go so fast yeah. that when we can catch them and gain insight into where we are, it really is a good thing. Even if it's embarrassing, <laughs> it's a good thing because it lets us I go. Wasn't embarrassed. Yeah. No, I mean, in our heart, it can be embarrassing yeah. to ourselves. Oh, like, but, but, but that is really where, that's how we grow. Because those thoughts come and go so quickly that it's very hard to catch them. And it's a gift to find them because then we know, like you said, we, we get an idea where we're really holding. But some of it is, it's like what we were talking about with how bad do we feel about things because we don't know the effects of what we do. Mm-hmm. We, do we don't even know. So, so just... if we don't understand, you know, so like I said, that's what that's, rabbis are there to help us with that. <laughs> like, you know, by knowing, they, they have to know for us because otherwise how, we don't know. What, it, what impact did it have? I don't know, was it a big one or was it a small one? How do we find out? So we ask. Baruch Hashem. You see that Hashem Hashem was looking out for you. Baruch Hashem, we came over here and had food and we had enough food besides the soup. There was no No shortage. (laughs) And 
we can still use the crock pot in. Oh, good. <laughs> so that's good news. We know that they can't turn on like the stove. Right. I guess it's the yeah. same thing, but and it. Why you know? Why I thought? Oh, it's all right with the crock pot. A, now I we know. know. <laughs> but you see, Hashem was also watching out for you. Yeah. Because. He, he knew that you wouldn't want to do it wrong. Yes. Which means that he made it that somebody was there to notice. Yes. And protect you from it. Because if you had eaten it when you weren't allowed, that would even be worse. That's right. Right? Mm-hmm. So he was really protecting you from the consequence of not knowing. That's a sign of, of love and a sign of knowing that you wanted to do it right. And it's like a, the test that he gives us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so he doesn't put you in an easy situation too long. It's a hard one when that's like your meal there, you know? <laughs> it's really not so easy. So anyway, when you mentioned cat, the difference yeah. between that. Especially since you just bought the thing. And you just bought and your and your family's over, so it doesn't yeah. just affect you. It affects everybody else. It's really a very big challenge. It's a big challenge. You know, a, a person that wasn't from would just say, it, well, this recorder. time, you know, <laughs> let it go, you know. And we, we don't do that. Right. There can't be the one time. <laughs> Sometimes. Mm-hmm. It can. <laughs> but, anyway. Right.